What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games back in person and 100% COVID-free and many negative tests under the belt. With me, as always, is my perpetually healthy co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. One of that's going to be the new buzzword. We had, like, gluten-free. We had... Now it's going to be... We had uh, <laughs> high, high protein. Yep, yep. Now it's going to be... Keto. COVID-free. Sure. Well, look, we can guarantee that unlike many of our competitors, listening to this podcast will not give you COVID. And if it does, full refund. Full refund. Yeah. yeah. I am Mark Bigney. We're going to be talking about board games here this week in a departure from our previous episodes. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about the topic. But before all that, Walker. Before. Before all that. Prior to pre, that. Pre-launch. Pre-launch. Have we, have we already launched? Maybe. Okay. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. Walker, what did we review last year? It was Praga Kaput Rigni. This is a Vladimir Suchi game. It is a combo-tastic game. Oh, very much with the combos. I still have Praga. I will not get rid of Praga. It is also on Yakata, and I've played it several times with listeners on, on Yakata. Is a fantastic game. I like everything about it. Or would you rather say it is, wait for it, excellent? Yes, it is very excellent, extremely <laughs> exorbitant, and all of those <laughs> things. Nice, I, get, nice. I get excited every time. You I, execute a combo? I, sometimes I exaggerate. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, we're terrible. This is, this, is, this is such a disappointment. Very much like my mother's review on iTunes. Uh, so... Here's my question, though, for you. So Praga was, unfortunately, in our group, a bit of a flash in the pan, like a lot of Vladimir Suki's games are. I can't speak for other people, but for me personally, it's largely just the feeling of sameness that I get for, from a lot of Vladimir Suki designs. All of them quality. Like, I don't think I've ever played a Vladimir Suki game of, ugh, unpleasant. But I do get a general sense of having been here before, of a generalized sense of there being a relatively low horizon for my interest in a given title. Of the of the Sookies of the past few years, I know you're a big fan of Woodcraft. Uh, you were, you're, you still are a big fan of Praga Capit Rigni. And Messina. And Messina. Uh, which of the recent Sookies would you say is your favorite? I think it is... Uh, Praga Capit Rigni? Praga. No, I, no, the Messina. Oh, okay. 13... 1347, I believe 1347. Oh, the one that I haven't played then. Yes. <laughs> Maybe there's a generalization here because my favorite Vladimir Suki is Pulsar 2849. Maybe what you need is a year in the title for it to really sing. Yeah, yeah, Pulsar's great. And it's, to, for, for, for my preference, the most different of uh, certainly a lot of the other Sookies. Yeah, I, I should really give it a try. So the list of things that you've played that you really enjoyed that I have not yet tried, either because I happened to be on the road when it came out, or because we were just like two ships passing it, passing in the wind, spreading the plague. Or there's just so many. Oh, there's just so many. The list is growing, but we should really work on that. Agreed. So that was Praga Caput Regni, Praga Capital of the World, a game full of eggs. 
And stone and gold. More stone and gold. Stone and gold, no problem. Stone and gold, you can get stone and gold all you want. Eggs, woof. Better work hard for that. Now, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Well, a quick thing. Uh, last week, I didn't talk about Shadow Rift for some reason. I must have skipped it on my list. I played Shadow Rift a couple weeks ago. I just want to talk about it because, you know, if uh, Xeno Shift is not your thing, then you should give Shadow Rift a try. It is a cooperative deck-building game that is very good. Everyone enjoyed it. A couple new players. Uh you are uh, defending a city, you're managing sort of the inhabitants, there's these villagers that come up every turn and they give you special abilities, but they're constantly getting killed, which adds corpses to your deck, which bloats your deck, but you can, travelers come so you can add them to your village, so sort of trying to even it out, lots of rules, the board, the way the board's laid out, it takes you through every phase, very enjoyable game, enjoy Shadow Rift. I wish that one... So there's been a number of expansions. I keep waiting for an expansion that, that kind of changes the the victory conditions enough so that I don't feel like... It's one of those things where, uh, like the Halifax Hammer, right? So there's this infamous strategy in uh, A Few Acres of Snow whereby you just do the same thing. And it's not necessarily... The problem... People disagree about whether or not the strategy is obviously dominant. But it is an easy and obvious thing to do. And I feel like once you know things like that, it can really undermine the tenor of a, of a given game. Specifically, if you feel like I do, sometimes the cognitive dissonance of forcing yourself to avoid the thing that you know is viable. And I feel the same way about Shadow Rift and its victory conditions. Normally, there are two victory conditions. Uh, one of them is very expensive and fragile. And the other is easily manipulable and kind of dull. And so <laughs> I wish that one of the new expansions would sort of recalibrate them to a certain extent. And that, I think, would really, really, really give a shot in the arm to my enjoyment of Shadow Rift. Because you're right, there's a lot of great stuff in Shadow Rift. And we had the same problem again. This time we wrote it down, Mark. So we talk, okay. we just talked about the, the villager deck. And there's this huge thing. Because all these expansions, it's supposed to be a set number. Right. And they, have, they all have symbols on them. So you have to make sure you have the right number of symbols. Also break the game. Right. But nowhere does it tell you yes. how to build this deck. The expansion modules do not have rules documentation. And the, this all throughout these expansions for this game, it's been a problem. Yes. But anyway, we finally wrote it on a piece of paper. Good and job. Put it in the box, which was funny because we made it as one of the trivia questions. I just didn't read it. It was, <laughs> was all different variants of... Of combos of, you know, what is the correct way to build <laughs> the Shadow Rift Villager deck. But anyway, more on the trivia later. Absolutely. And that is Shadow Rift. Played Jetpack Joyride, specifically the Deluxe Edition. I was tasked to suggest a number of quick games for one of our gatherings. And I pulled out a number of things. And, and Jetpack Joyride was not what was selected. But I'm constantly reminded that I, I really enjoy Jetpack Joyride. So I decided to try the solo version. So in the multiplayer version... Although it is uh, sort of licensed after an Android game of at least 10 years ago, probably more, it is a real-time competitive polyomino laying game. The solo version is 100% a spatial puzzle. Now, already I knew that that wasn't going to be to my taste. That's just a personal preference thing, whatever. It is literally the case that rather than getting randomized room setups that you pass around the table in the multiplayer version, and you in real time catch as catch can polyominoes to try to trace your route, avoiding certain dangers and getting certain benefits and so forth, and then sprinkling in mission objectives and a whole bunch of other stuff that is both A, evocative of the game, and B, adds variety to the gameplay. Suffice to say, I very much enjoy Jetpack Joy, right? The solo version is a set map with a set set of tiles, and you're told to get from point A to point B, scoring a certain number of points, and there's no time pressure, there's no pressure from anybody else. Mm -hmm. Now, there are 50 different versions of these puzzles. And some of them do involve mission parameters and so forth. But there is only one unique solution to every puzzle. They make that very clear in the instructions. I knew that wasn't going to be my jam. The thing that makes it worse, though, and I think what might make it not the jam for much of anyone, is that the amount of time it takes to pull out the specific room cards and the specific polyominoes you need frequently is in excess of the amount of time it took me to solve the puzzles. And I am bad at these things, Walker. <laughs> now, it didn't take a whole heck of a long time, but it took a few minutes. And so when the ratio of setup to solving is that bad, no thanks. Yeah, it's just it's the few minutes of dreg as well, right? It's not as though it's like a fun upkeep or bookkeeping thing. It's 
you know, oh, oh, it's not the five cube hook that yeah. way. It's the five cube cube hook this way. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, no. Yeah. What makes it even worse at, th- at this point, I'm just getting into a nitpick. You're looking for tile number, so for room number 17. You might think that on the other side of room 17 might be either 16 or 18, depending on how it's it's numbered. No. <laughs> that would be false. Yeah, we're not, doing, we're not going to do it that way. <laughs> the other side of 17 is, thir- is, is 13. I didn't, as I was looking through here, I thinking, I could possibly try to internalize whether it's always a difference of four and whether it's, you know, always odd on both sides. I couldn't be bothered. I did a couple of them and I'm like, nope, not for me. Uh, but it just reminded me that I would like to play Jetpack Joyride in multiplayer again. Very, very quick, easy to teach, what have you. But as far as a blunt spatial puzzle goes, it actually made me appreciate, while I was sitting there playing it, it made me appreciate Project L a little bit more. Because if you recall, Project L has the trappings of, you know, this minimalistic pure spatial puzzle. But it just has that slight injection of interesting efficiency concerns and of weird throughput issues that really elevates it, again, despite there being a very, very simple rule set. And you still get to play with very satisfying plastic polyominoes. I mean, any game with little plastic polyominoes are fun to manipulate, and uh, that is definitely a vote in favor of, you know, Project L, of Bits, of Fits, uh, both by Red and Knizia, or indeed of Jetpack Joyride. Anyway. Jetpack Joyride, I recommend it multiplayer. I do not recommend it as a solo experience. This is by Mikhail Golubuski, published by Lucky Duck Games 2019. I got Barcelona to the table, Mark, and it's the sort of like the latest buzz. This is designed by Danny Garcia and put out by Board and Dice Games. And so what you're doing in Barcelona is the city had been walled for a long time and everything was forced inside the city. And they finally decided to you know, bust down the walls and now you can build outside the city. And unlike in modern times, they had a planner. (laughs) Unfortunately, the planner said that there must be restaurants everywhere and the restaurants can only serve one thing and that's point salad. (laughs) No, but it does have some interesting, it has some interesting mechanisms. The main one is you are placing two citizens at the start of every of every one of your turns. And when you're totally done your turn, you'll draw two random citizens in the bag to replace those for next turn. Now, placing these citizens is going to determine which actions you're going to do because there's a row of actions down the side of the streets and along the top of the streets and where you put the citizens, the intersect are the two actions you're going to take. Okay. There's also a row that goes diagonally down the center of Barcelona And that triggers another action. So if you go down this angled street, then you're going to get three actions. But they're going to, things will happen why you won't want to do that. Well, certain actions you can't take and so on and so forth or certain combos of actions. And then after you've done all your actions, you get to build a building. And you must build a building if you can. And buildings are built depending on how these citizens are placed. So obviously the first player, there's no way they can build a building because buildings need to have like sort of... Uh, num- multiple citizens around a block. And because the first player only places a single stack of two citizens, not going to happen. So buildings get built when a red citizen and a yellow citizen love each other very, very much. And they have a baby building. They have a special hug and then a special, then a baby building gets built. Okay. Just so. Okay. And so certain buildings, there's three different classes of, of citizens. And so some buildings require certain combinations. Fighter rogue wizard, I assume. Just so. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you get to build a building and that gives you more stuff. So on a given turn, it can go very long. You do three actions. One of the actions is move your tram and you drop off a passenger, which is going to trigger uh, a couple more actions. I see. It's going to score the streets again. And it's going to, wherever you drop the passenger off, is also going to let you do the action of that street again. So there's four actions. And then trigger and trigger. And yes, so points, points everywhere. But I, I did very much enjoy it. There's like uh, lots of different goals to go for. There's three goals. And it's interesting scoring because when you build that building, you take the top citizen off of that stack and it reveals new citizens that can be now used to build buildings. But those citizens go down on this track along the bottom, which sort of dictate the points the buildings are worth I see. and also advances the game. Because as soon as a certain class of citizens filled for the first thing, then that will score and so on and so Is forth. Is it kind of a stock mechanism? Uh, well, no, it's just, it's just, there's random point values that go along those three tracks. Oh. And then as you fit, as you cover them, you know, the, the next highest one is what you're going to score for building and building. So okay. it just sort of makes them higher that way. I really enjoyed it. I'm one, I don't think you're going to like it. I hope you're going to like it. I want to show it to you, but we'll see. I have one very specific question. 
Is it the case that there's substantial opportunity for planning ahead, or is it the case that somebody building a building in the turn before means they'll say, okay, well, I guess I Oh, can't. no, there's very much planning ahead, because you can see Good. where all the citizens are. You can sort of see, I'm, I'm going to place a citizen here, and that will get that will allow me to build a building. Even if they build a building, it'll still, because, okay. you know, the one that I want to build requires a uh, second-class citizen. I have one in my hand. I'm going to make sure it's on top, and then that's- Second-class citizen? Yeah, there's first-class, second-class, and third. Yeah, whoa. Ouch. Ouch. Social commentary. I know. <laughs> but that was Barcelona. More on that soon. I'm sure we're going to give it a try soon. All right. Got to play Regicide. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. All this Regicide talk, Walker, and all this appreciation for Regicide's art. I don't think we spend enough time talking about Sketch Goblin's art because we were comparing in the stream and in the, uh, the, the, the trivia segment that we did over the weekend of giving away copies of Regicide. We were sometimes unfavorably comparing the new art of the new edition of Regicide or unfavorably comparing it to the original version. You know, commenting on the changes, saying which ones we preferred. Uh, there was a discussion of Duck versus Owl, for example. There was a discussion of Wizards versus Bards, which is the biggest change between the three. But I do want to stress, even my least favorite Sketch Goblin pieces of art are really good. Oh, yeah. They were, I'm not going to say <laughs> all, They're all, all very good. It's, all, it's, all the art in Regicide is so good. It's all about personal preference. Abs- absolutely. And how some people have wrong personal preferences. And so this was inspiring me to take out a, another uh, my, my well-worn and battered copy of Regicide. Although the cards have held up remarkably well. The box, on the other hand, is... Uh, <clears throat> but this is only it's because... Odd. Yeah, because it's weird. I went over the rules again, too. It's small print, but if you read it, you can see it. There will be no wear on these cards every time you win. So I can understand why yours is very worn. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to go there. I thought we could just, <laughs> I know. just have a nice conversation as friends. It is at the beating of the horse, but I, it just came into my head. I thought it was kind of clever. Anyway. Uh, wow. That's a low bar, I've got to say. <laughs> and Regicide just continues to thrill. I, I played it solo. It's not my favorite configuration. I prefer Regicide with other people. It, it, it's a way of de-stressing and de-puzzling the experience because I can just pretend. I, I, look, at its best... Playing Regicide well with other people is a form of telepathy. It's like, okay, that person's really got to play a spade now. It's like, oh, they played a spade. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. And you get to feel brilliant. It's like one of those wavelength moments. Uh, but when you're playing solo, you just I, I internalize all that pressure, and it's all on me. <laughs> so there's no, there's no fuzzy ambiguity as to whose fault it is when everything goes wrong. But uh, I am always happy to play a game of Regicide. Regicide is by Paul Abrams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale. Published by Badgers from Mars. And if you have not tried Regicide yet, what are you doing listening to this podcast? Have we not done our jobs properly? You should try Regicide. You can play with a standard deck of cards. Standard deck. Look up the rules. It's a wonderful game. It's fantastic. But of course, once you try it, you're going to want the Sketch Goblin versions. These are all true facts. Yes. So I have sort of like a board game family. I cycle out probably around eight to seven games to them sort of every three months or so. I'd never played a game with them, but seeing as school is about to come, I said to my friend, won't you bring your son over and we'll play a game. The last rotation included Space Hulk. Apparently it was the greatest hit of of ever. As well it should be. As well it should be. So I thought a great pairing would be Project Elite. And so and it was a great pairing. It was well received. Project Elite is a real time sort of play with your toys, shoot the aliens, get fun guns rush around the board, you know, chaos. Actually, that is one of my mild criticisms of Project Elite. I don't think the guns are very fun. You know, they've got a... Look, it it absolutely is the proper design choice. They typically have a range of, like, one or two spaces. It has to be that way. You don't want, in a real-time game, things that you might do, if, for example, in Space Hawks. Like, do I have line of sight? What's the range here? Am I within 12 spaces? And that's great. I hate counting squares. Counting squares, I, 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 I loathe. It's one of my favorite things about claustrophobia. You don't have to worry about stuff like that. But I do think that the, the guns just feel so anemic in Project Elite. Come on, admit it. I agree. No, okay. 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 And they're very similar, but I think that kind of thing you need because you don't want to be sitting there reading a new gun 100%, trying to figure out how 100%. it works. It's it, absolutely it, the correct design choice. Yeah. It has the range. It has how many dice you roll. It does what you need to hit. And they're, they're all very similar. Yeah. So in this game, we ran into particular nasty boss sort of near the end. Like we had this boss in our last plane at the very beginning. It's <laughs> super easy because what he does is... You need to roll the dice to do everything. Moving, shooting, 
doing searching it all has different symbols in the dice uh the and when you move use uh sorry when you roll a move symbol you get to move around the map this boss says that you have to roll two move symbols Oof. in order to move one space that is brutal so guess what in the in the first time we encountered him he was the first boss so every alien symbol that came up he yeah. zipped across the table and was then gunned down in this one unfortunately there was aliens everywhere and he has uh. a little he has a little side paragraph mark that makes him extra sweet you can't target him if there are any aliens around him that's ridiculous so <laughs> first you have to kill all the aliens around him and then and then you get to target. Luckily, he has groupies he only has four wounds luckily oh that's something so the problem was the particular map we played as the very end completing the very last objective uh uh my friend was desperately trying to gun him down this is like in the last turn so he kills him. I start rolling the dice, you know, trying to get all the way because you can only win if all of the all the people make it home. all the way back to the HQ. I was two spaces away, Mark. <sighs> Unfortunately, our mission was a failure, but still, there, it did not dampen the mood. That's for sure. This boss scheme seems to keep popping up. Yeah, um, <laughs> not. I ripped up that card. We're not doing that again. <laughs> We're not. It's a fantastic boss. I love him. All right. So that's Project Elite. It's designed by everyone. Uh, Constenios Colkinis, Marco Port- uh, Porgal, and Sortinos Tentiles. The original copy was put out by Artipia Games, and this new edition is put out by Simon. That is Project Elite. So all these games that you've been playing again that I really want to play again, all these new games that you play without me, how come the new games that you have us play together are not as satisfying? This is an elaborate segue to say that we played Ready, Set, Bet. Now, <clears throat> Ready, Set, Bet has been getting uh, some plaudits from some circles. It is, it is a novel concept. It is a real-time competitive betting game where you're betting on the ponies. And the ponies advance in one of two ways. You either have it so that someone runs it as a game master, which seems desperately unsatisfying. I mean, look, maybe if you've got a crowd, a large crowd, because it it can accommodate a large number of players. Maybe if you have a a truly large number of people and it's going to get super raucous, maybe it might be enjoyable to just sit there and roll 2d6 all day and call up the number of the horses and advance them. Just so people understand and make it easy. Because everyone's played uh, Can't Stop. So just think if you played Can't Stop with multiple people, but you were just betting on who was going to win. Sure. Because, right, this is a formula people have tried to crack over and over again. It's the Can't Stop formula. It's, you know, the race by rolling dice. It's been done so many times, and this is just yet another iteration of that. I mean, structurally, I think there's some things to recommend it. I mean... Anyway, just to complete my comparison, instead of having one person serve as the Game Master, you can have an app run it, which is what we decided to do. And I just, to be entirely frank, and this is not the game's fault, I just did it badly. Because what you need is a reasonably large screen that all the players can see so they know where the horses are going. And the way I decided to do it instead, which was my brainwave and entirely my own fault, I was running it off my phone and then updating the board in real time so that everyone can see where the horses was because my horse wasn't big enough for a group of uh, uh, around a table to actually see what was going on. Consequently, I didn't really feel like I was playing the game. I, I literally didn't have enough time to think because the pace of Ready, Set, Bet is actually pretty advanced. It's horse advances, horse advances, horse advances, more or less. And so between that... There's not really much time for me to go and bet because it's a real-time betting game and it's kind of got a sort of worker placement vibe in that a bet can only be occupied by one player. So, you know, if seven or six or eight, most likely, pulls ahead early, a lot of those prime betting spots are going to get snapped up. And then as the race tightens up, then you start getting more desperate. It That part is potentially interesting. I do appreciate the real-time aspect. But overall, when you compare it to, to my mind, the actual king of pretty pony games uh namely winner's circle slash royal turf by reiner knizia which is not a game i think that you've played certainly not with me but i i thoroughly enjoy winner's circle it used to be the go-to closer or opener for something that's reasonably quick it's much longer than ready set bad in fact the, the key problem of winner's circle is that it's probably a little bit longer than it wants to be but nonetheless it has that same dynamic of of betting and bidding when it comes to betting and bidding, naturally, unsurprisingly, you're going to hear me say that I think Reiner Knizia has got a handle on the math and risks on it better than John D. Clare. Shocking, I know. John D. Clare as a designer consistently remains 
almost there for me. My favorite game of his is definitely Rolling Heights, mostly just by virtue of the brilliant monkey-based endgame. Uh, but I, I, I don't hate Ready, Set, Bet. Although, again, I'm not really in a position to comment too, too much on the quality of the design because I didn't feel like I was playing it, really. Uh, but to me, it's definitely in that sort of murky middle design of, you know, Space Base or uh, Mystic Veil or, you know, the game kind of plays itself and it's all right. I don't know. I, just, I kept thinking like, I'd rather be playing Longshot, the dice game, right? I just oh, think sure. they do that sort of thing better. And I didn't hate it. You know what I mean? It's it's fine. It's it, it the betting part was very interesting, but then there's like that bog down when the race is over. Okay, who places which these bets are going to pay out? Do all the arithmetic, and it's like mm. no, those are minuses. And and then it had some interesting uh, special powers that you got during each race. That were was, they interesting? A lot of them well, were compar- pretty dull. <laughs> comparatively, right? <laughs> like in in context of the game itself. Right? Sure, sure. Another big missed opportunity, though, and I think this is really where a lot of the personality comes in. It seems like a minor thing, but I think it actually has consequence. One thing that both the Long Shot the Dice game and Winner's Circle has is the horses have names. As opposed, and You'd be shocked how much that, that influences things. And there are horses from Winner's Circle that are infamous. Like, regret. Everyone who's played Winner's Circle knows regret. I don't mean the sentiment, I mean the horse. But also the sentiment based on the horse. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard to get as worked up about, you know, horse number eight, which was definitely the winningest horse of our session. But, and, you know, Longshot also has names. It's, it's, it's true. And then there's a a whole row of cards along the top that are all these like weird sort of puzzly, not, I don't want to say puzzly, but just weird conditions, circumstantial wind conditions, which I guess this will pay out if six finishes ahead of all the horses with a blue number. This will pay out if five finishes behind all, you know, whatever. And again, as I say, I was literally not in a position to evaluate any of those because I did not have the bandwidth available. It is just, it's a simple, su- stupid task, but it had to be done instantaneously and it had to be accurate or it was going to throw everybody off. And so I internalized that pressure. And again, my own fault, not the fault of the game. I would like to try Ready, Set, Bet again with A, a larger group, and B, a big screen so that it it ran the show by itself. And honestly, it wouldn't be a serious time commitment anyway. Although I guess the races themselves do, do last a, a fair bit of time after all the bets are done. They should really just expedite things in the app version. Anyway, Ready, Set, Bet. John D. Clare, AEG, published last year. There are better horse betting games as far as I'm concerned. Walker seems to agree. I got to play a game called Taught by Mark, played on the stream, Aegean Sea. This is by Carl Chaddock and put out by Asmati Games and can be summed up in one sentence. Oh boy. Which is, replace island with two goods. Yes. So, there are 220 cards in Aegean Sea. Each of them has a unique effect. And very much like innovation, very much like, indeed, any card game by Carl Chuddick, there's a whole bunch of strange effects that might get triggered. And so a lot of it relies on precise wording and keywords. Now, some people around the table had considerable difficulty internalizing how some of these strictures were to be interpreted. Sometimes I felt it was the game's fault. Sometimes I thought it wasn't. Yeah, I don't, there's no problem. It's like replace island with two goods. You, yeah. You pick up the island. Right. And you throw it away. Yeah. And you put two goods in its place. Oh, no, 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 no. That's how, it, that's how someone who reads English would interpret oh, it. Oh, gotcha. You need to speak Chuddock. Ah. In Chuddock, what it means is replace an island that has two goods. Gotcha. You notice how I changed that with just a simple word? Ah. Uh, <laughs> makes so much more sense now. And yet. No, uh, sometimes I felt that the, the the language was necessarily obtuse, and sometimes I felt that the language was unnecessarily obtuse. Uh, for full disclosure, this is a game published by Asmati Games. Asmati Games it consists of owner-operator Chris Cheslick, who's a personal friend of mine. I last tried a GNC years ago when it was its pre-production phase. I have to say that this is probably the least changed I've seen a, a Chuddock game have for, for that long a, a, a period of, of reworking. That's not a criticism. It's just normally I'm familiar with uh, my experiences playing earlier versions of Glory to Rome or Innovation, where the games feel very, very different from what their original versions were. I don't know if that's a testament to the stability of EGNC, or maybe it's just a testament to how strange the thing is that I wasn't able to process it first. 
I only feel slightly better able to comment on Agency now having played it the second time. I, I will say the following. It is admirable in how it sets people up to trigger a dizzying variety of specific conditionals. And if you're the kind of person that likes to be constantly setting up all these effects, Agency might please you slightly more than other Chudik games. However, I will say the following. When comparing Agency to, again, Innovation and Glory to Rome, which are my two favorite Carl Chudik games, when something happens in Innovation or Glory to Rome, I think it's something cool. And generally speaking, the wild and sometimes unpredictable because it's the first time playing and you haven't seen all the cards, all those effects, they're at least, many of them are neat. <laughs> in a GNC, I never really felt like I was doing anything particularly interesting. It was all just about putting a population or a temple here and shoveling a ship over somewhere and getting a good somewhere. And But sometimes you really want to move that ship because that's how you're going to get victory points. Why don't you move that ship, Walker? Because I didn't get the card, Mark. And oh. you didn't get the card. And, and they didn't it's get true, the card. It's true, I didn't. And, and then there's nothing you can do. And that's the only way you get victory points is to move goods back to your home Well, base. no. So every every faction has some sort of cheaty effect that, that violates the basic structure of a GNC. The basic structure is very, very simple. You... Put a good on an island, get a ship to that island, sail the ship back with a good on it, and that's it. Because that's pretty much all you're getting points for. Each faction, even in the three-player game that we played with Sidewinder, I could theoretically generate goods every time a ship showed up. I There were a couple times where I should have triggered it and didn't. I was kind of getting overwhelmed by the details. Not unusual for a second playing of a Chittick game. You generated goods ex nihilo sometimes when you were refreshing your hand. And Ephesus generates goods ex nihilo uh, largely by stealing them because they are filthy, filthy thieves who steal by bureaucracy. It, it, it's really strange, though, because... I Again, I felt hampered by my inability to get done what I wanted to do. I always feel like when playing Innovation or Glory to Rome, even when I'm getting hammered, I feel like I've got recourses. I feel like I can pivot and try to do something else or try to weather the storm of chaos until I can seize my moment because there are these big swings. In our playing of a GNC, there were a couple of instances where a number of people would be like, I see what you're doing here. And I see how you're messing with me, because that's that's where the player interaction comes with, because normally you're all playing on the, sh the shared set of islands. It never felt like we had the abilities to react, certainly not in a dynamic way, to the ways that we were being predated upon when we were being predated. Yeah, there's like, in, in other games, it'd be like, every time this happens, then this person's going to do this to you. So it's like, well, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to do what that does, but differently. Yeah. Sometimes I got that sense. Like, for example, your uh, your nation, uh, your city-state, had the ability to inflict piracy on people. And the way to protect yourself from piracy is you just build up populations so that when the piracy hits you, you lose one of your population, but it's better than losing the entire island. Okay, fine. Sure. F fair. Whatever. You only have a finite number of actions, though, and if population is not your deal... Yeah, that seems awfully expensive, but setting that aside. But there was this moment where I was going to be stealing a whole bunch of Sidewinder's goods... And she's sitting there saying, I, I know exactly what you're going to do. I even know how you're going to do it. I, I see no way for me to do anything about it. I'm like, yeah, I don't see any way for you to do anything about it either. And it's so easy to do. It's just like, And it's an action that you're going to take anyway. It's like, uh, no, it was not easy, sir. Well, uh, maybe not yours. But mine was, I'm out of cards. I'm going to refresh. Guess yes. what? It's piracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those, those ones. I, the only thing I know for certain about Carl Chudik designs is that one play is not enough to give them full full faith and credit, as it were. But uh, I, I will say that my my impulse, no pun intended, to get it back to the table, I can't believe I did that accidentally, to get it back to the table is blunted by two factors. Number one, the fact that the way keywords and the phrasing works means that you have to play with people with a very, very high frustration threshold. And or uh, Chudik stands. And there are a lot of Chudik stands out there. And more power to them. I've got nothing against them. Please don't come after me. But the second problem is, I'd rather be playing Innovation or Glory to Rome. And maybe a GNC is the attempt to be less chaotic. Maybe it's as chaotic as the others once you know what you're doing and you get a better sense of pulling. I don't know. I'd be certainly willing to try it again. Uh, but I got to say, I'm not I'm not feeling a tremendous drive to do so. It had a very interesting mechanism where there are five different factions and you're going to play with those five decks every time because they also represent the five goods that are in the game. And every time you generate a good, you don't use the card that you, you played to generate that good. No, you put that into your discard pile and then you grab the person, the, the player's card 
that represents yes. that good, and then you use that as the good. Because every card has a sort of default good association and a preference. And the default good association almost never matters, except when it really matters. And that disjunct I, too, found confusing even by the end of the game. I had to constantly think about what it meant for a card to be timber versus a card to have a timber preference. And that that's key to how a GNC works. There's no way around it. And they did as good a job graphically possible. I mean, the, 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 the iconography is really well done to constantly remind you that this bronze card isn't bronze. It's actually sometimes timber, kind of, sort of, except when it's bronze. But it's just a, a weird built-in conceptual distinction. Like I say, it, it, look, it's fascinating. I mean, Carl Chuddick doesn't design uh, boring games, at least not the ones produced by Asmati. I, I can't really speak to, to, to the rest of his work. Uh, he's he's done some games with other publishers that were uh, sometimes a little dodgy, I think. But uh, ultimately, they're they're kind of interesting. But I think a GNC might be more the kind of interesting that I admire from a distance than the interesting that I want to ponder and get inside the guts of. And that's a GNC. A GNC by Asmati Games, designed by Carl Chuddick. People have been on Tinderhooks, Walker, wondering what was the, the light I was, game. I was on Tinder. Oh, Tinder that we put... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 not Tinder. Gotcha, sorry, sorry. Anyway, uh, what light game did we play instead of Jetpack Joyride? Well, we played So Clover. So Clover is by François Romain, published by Repo Production. It's kind of, sort of, in my head, the spiritual successor to Just One. And we pulled it out to somebody who was a, a big fan of Just One. The difference with So Clover, though, is that it's a word game whereby you're given this random matrix of words and you have to come up with clues that unite two words together. And so there's there's kind of more room for creativity in a game of So Clover, both by virtue of how the cards work and by virtue of the fact that you're connecting two words together. It, it was the thing where we we were playing the game and I we just it was a, it was a very low scoring game. It's a cooperative game. They don't even bother to have a sort of scoring metric at the back of the rulebook the way the way they do in Just One, which is both good news and bad news. The bad news is you never really feel like you have a sense of how good your score is. The good news is you don't get to be insulted by a piece of paper or negged by a designer at a remove. But we, this is a, we didn't do too well in this game of So Clover, and we just seemed to have rough associations. And so I was really feeling like it was a frustrating experience, not really knowing what other people were trying to clue into, not really knowing what kind of clue to give. That having been said, it kind of got its claws into me. And I've been thinking over the course of the day of better clues I could have given, more creative responses to the specific set of concepts that were being played around in the game of So Clover. And that's saying something. It's true. I, I will play that anytime. It's one of my favorite games. Man, it's so good. Do you prefer it to just one? I do. Hmm. It's weird. Just one, strangely, feels more social to me. And there's no good reason for that. <laughs> I, I compare it mo more to code names than just one. Really? Because you, Fair you're, enough. Because you're trying to link words together. Yeah, well, the, the same is true of just one. I mean, you, 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 yeah, the I clues suppose. are like, they're all of the same family. Yeah, like code names, just one, even decrypto. So Clover, they're all of a piece, and I would happily play any of them, but that you kind of can arrange them on a spectrum of more thinky and less thinky. And just one, I think, is definitely uh, in, in a sort of a less thinky direction than So Clover is, because there are fewer puzzly elements. It's just, just one has the drama of the reveal. That's what it has. You know, you're trying to do the double think of giving a clue that nobody else has given. And then you're, you're, you're waiting to see what everyone else has revealed. And then it's like, oh, no, there are only two clues left. And then the person opens their eyes and only sees two clues available and everyone laughs. So Clover feels a little bit more serious to me. It's kind of the same way that I prefer code names to Decrypto. Decrypto feels like a various, very super serious thing, which is fine. And it's a very, very clever design. But when playing word games like that, I kind of like the drama of the reveal. There's no drama in So Clover. Really. True, but there's no leader either, it's which true. is great because everyone right. has their own board. There's no uh, game master or, or... It's true. So. Oh, And make no mistake, I will happily play So Clover any day of the week. I think it is a, a, a very, very excellent design and a very worthy entrant in a crowded field of very quality, party-ish conceptual linkage word games. I just think, all told, I, I slightly prefer just one, even though it is a more prosaic one-to-one -one association, and you, you're you therefore going to see re repetition of topics, possibly. I mean, it's a big deck with, with five clues per card. But in So Clover, 
if you see the same card twice over the course of your lifespan of saying so clover doesn't matter because it depends on what it's next to and that completely changes the tenor of everything anyway so clover highly recommended francois ramain reproduction also has charming plastic pieces which and of course uh, dry erase markers that will inevitably dry out yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, inevitably i opened my box and one had actually been stored with the cap off so it woof that one's deader, deader in disco, I gotta say. That's how, that's, I got to put Northgard Uncharted Lands back to the table. This is another game that's based off a computer game. This is designed by Adrian Denou and published by Sherman Games. And it is kind of like a deck builder, troops on a map game. You're playing Vikings. They have uh, their own special power. You have your clan cards that you can get put into your deck at the end of every round there are cards available to go into your deck so you're not worrying about generating money to buy cards because the only way to build your deck is at the end of a round whoever passes first is going to get the choice of the n number of cards right the number player number of cards so four players four cards to choose from so it's an interesting incentive to pass early you know there's that last action that might not be that important you really want the one card so you pass early get the card you also get to go first so that part of the game i enjoy the the battles are very simple the win conditions are not you know extraordinarily complicated plays fairly quickly everyone enjoyed it Northgard uncharted lands there's also many modules that we haven't even tried yet. There's a leader module. There's a way to put wildlife into it and then super deluxe wildlife into it. <laughs> so I definitely want to give those a try. This is the wild boar. This is the bedazzled wild boar. This is the the Etten with two heads that will destroy all your units anyway. Is an Etten with two heads an Etten with four heads? Yes. Okay. Also played Four Shuffle, designed by Koosh, only a single word, and published by Lookout Games. You want multi-use cards? Well, let me tell you. So you're, it is a very dead, I don't want to say dead simple, makes it, you know, takes away from it maybe, but it's a card game where you're simply playing cards from your hand to pay for stuff. So there's no resources that you're just giving up cards out of your hand. So what you want to do is get a main tree out into your tableau, and then you're putting cards to either side, top and bottom, and they all have different scoring. So butterflies want more butterflies in the top or squirrels in the top or, you know, deer and cougars and bears on the sides oh and, and insects and different kinds of flowers on the bottom you take your pick go for your combos and you're trying to build the biggest you know most point scoring forest very interesting game it is on board game arena you can give it a try and those are the games we played this week now for a brief break while we pay some bills this episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions manscaped this season make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below the waist grooming Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice. It's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20. And we're back. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. So there's going to be a new video game adaptation. Oh, boy. Borderlands Mr. Torg's Arena of Badassery. Now, I gotta say, I gotta say, Walker, I have a certain degree of affection for Mr. Torg. As do I. Oh, I, do you? I also was in on the first, you know, sort of Borderlands, you know, genre when everyone, you know, when it first came out. Well, I was, I only jumped in on Borderlands in the second 
version. Uh, when the first one was released, I was too busy suplexing a shark wearing a bolo tie. And you might be asking, was I wearing the bolo tie or was the shark? The answer is yes. Yes. But Mr. Torg is just dripping with charisma. Imagine a foul-mouthed, politically inclined, constantly shouting Hulk Hogan stand-in. And uh, I, I gotta say, uh, they managed to take a very colorful and uh, uh, interesting setting and character and produce something that looks entirely drab and uninteresting. It's true. It's impressive how much they drained it of personality. The pictures don't really give it much justice. You've got this drab, deserty landscape with no character whatsoever. No torque. There's no torque. And then they need to torque it up. Is what all, I'm saying. All of the enemies are the same color. This this weird orange, and then of course all of the good guys are the weird. Good people are weird gray. I don't know if there are any good people in Borderlands, but sure. So it, it is a cooperative game. Sure. So it might be interesting to see. Question mark. All right. This has been put out by Monster Fight Club with other great hits such as... Citation Needed. <laughs> My only bit of news is, Mark, we have this sort of soft spot for magnetically closing boxes and oh, that, yeah. that little click they make when, you know, they close and I love how magnets. nicely fitted they are. Oh, yeah. Well, they're putting out a new edition of Can't Stop. And not only does it have a magnetic lid, but the whole box is magnetic because it all folds out to make the board. Do the Are the pieces magnetic too? That I am not 100% sure. Oh. But I know that, that when it closes, it's magnetic, and it is the board as you, like, roll it out. Okay. And there's, like, a little folded triangle that will fit into the middle part when you're done. I've never owned my own copy of Can't Stop, but I can see myself maybe purchasing this one because it looks very cool. I made a trade for the dexterity game Polarity, which is a, a an old-style mass-market game that was played on the mat, and all the pieces are magnets. And it's all about hovering pieces. Have you played Polarity? I have not played it, but I've seen it played and seen videos of it. Yeah, conceptually, it seems fascinating. The problem is, is that I, you know, I completed the trade. I was all excited. It came with, I think, a third of the pieces necessary to play. Uh, and it was also missing the centerpiece, which is the thing that starts the game. Uh, I complained, well, complained. I observed this problem to the individual who traded me the game. Uh, the individual asserted that th this had been entirely an error and they would look into it, but they were currently suffering from back problems. I said, okay, well, take your time. That's fine. And then I reached out again eight months later and heard nothing. So it looks like I don't have a copy of Polarity. Oh. It's sad. Anyway, do you notice a sad walker? I've been thinking about this. I spent a lot of this week reading rule sets for tabletop miniatures games. And I've been encountering instance after instance of a certain style of tabletop miniatures game. And that is somebody who had a definite aesthetic vision for the kind of little dolls that they wanted to play with and the kind of terrain and adversaries that they wanted the little dolls to be playing in around with. And then either in their designer voice or somebody else, they were pitching the game to said, oh, and how does it work? At that point, the hand-waving begins. I've talked before a number of times, both on this show and other shows, that there's a certain generic, bog-standard set of entirely soulless tabletop miniatures rule set that you can make and then adapt for various settings. And if all you care about is the setting, your rule set is going to look more and more like that kind of stereotypical, genericized rule set. And I read a bunch of different ones that had very promising... Like, I'm, I'm, I admit, I'm somewhat of an outlier in the tabletop mini-genre. And it's the sad part is that I see very, very few designers. Among them are Roby Jenkins, who has done the Horizon Wars series of games. Among them also are Mike Hutchison, who's done Gaslands and A Billion Sons. These designers exist, right? But they tend to be in the minority. Now, the bad news for me is that there's a minority of tabletop miniatures games that have this union of interesting resolution mechanisms and setting that I find appealing. But the good news, I was thinking about this and I was feeling a little bit sorry for myself. Oh, woe is me. I, I, I'm a, I'm a gamer without a country. But then I realized, no, actually, this is just why miniatures gaming is actually kind of cool because tabletop miniatures gaming includes people who never play games at all right? There are these people who collect the dollies they like and paint the dollies and mount the dollies the way they like and never, ever, ever give a thought to the game. And that's actually kind of neat. 
that as a hobby, it can contain those kinds of multitudes. And given the fact that tabletop miniatures gaming is already a niche within a niche within a niche that is already very exclusionary and kind of homogeneous, the fact that there's a number of different avenues for appreciating it as a hobby, I think might be the way forward to a glorious new future where more people do it. So anyway, this was... These have been my reflections over the course of the past few weeks. And which is all to say, uh, you should be playing the games of Ruby Jenkins and Mike Hutchinson if you <laughs> are at all curious about these kinds of things. Miniatures agnostic rule sets, I think, are the way to go because they tend to be more driven by individuals who have a sense of wanting to capture a certain mechanical element or gameplay element rather than necessarily saying, I have a vision of Napoleonic soldiers that are also part turnip. And it's like, but how does the game work? It's like, uh, I don't know, roll a d6 or something. Game? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not look, and if you like the ones where it's just oh, uh, roll a d6, uh, roll a four, five, or six, uh, you hit, and uh, then if you roll a four, five, or six after that, you wound them and then they die. Otherwise, they get knocked down. Uh, whatever. If that's your bag, more power to you. Go forth and 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 sin no more. It's just not really what I'm looking for in the hobby. And uh, there we go. But as I said, the hobby can contain multitudes. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the game of the week. Which is nope. On the Road. See, in On the Road, you play music bands that want to teach, that want to reach the Sunshine Festival with the most fans. During the game, you travel through the land and gather the highest number of fans to win. You need to make sure that they will also make it to the festival to see you on stage and won't get stuck in line at the toilet. That is On the Road. No, On the Road is a book written in the 1960s by Jack Kerouac. Oh, I don't think these notes are going to line up, Mark. Are you at all familiar with beat culture? Were you, uh, were you a beatnik walker? No. Have you seen The Greatest Minds of Your Generation Driven Mad? Yes. <laughs> okay. Also, not to be confused, I'd forgotten also, isn't, isn't there a novel by the name of The Road by uh, Cormac McCarthy? They made a movie. Yeah, I, I've never read a Cormac McCarthy novel. Apparently, he was very good. Uh. People say very good things about Cormac McCarthy. I've never read it or anything. Anyway. Gaming on the road has been a topic that has been very much front of mind for me lately, as I've been dashing hither and yon to and fro, not just in the immediate past, but I'm still recovering, believe it or not, from my year abroad, as it were, six months in Vancouver, six months in, in Boston. And it is a topic that I find very challenging, but at the same time, uh, sometimes a potentially interesting challenge. Do you have that experience, Walker? I don't travel a lot, Mark. So, no. Says the man who went on a year-long walkabout. I did. Across the Near East, the Far East, and Europe. That's pretty well the only thing I have here to talk about. I brought... Well, that's fine. 13 games along with me on my on my walkabout. It was, it was nine when I was... Like, it was 13 at the base base camp, and then nine I was wa- while I was walking to base. Base camp? Yeah, base camp in, in Italy. Okay. And then when I went out on my walkabouts... Oh, okay. It would, it, would, it would be pared down to nine games. I thought you were talking about, like, scaling a mountain or something, in which case that would be new details from travels that I was not aware of. Nope. And then, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, I picked games that were uh, language independent, that I definitely knew the rules for, that were easy to teach, and that uh, would accompany a lot of uh, people, because I knew that there was hostile Hostile environments. <laughs> Hostels with like lots of people, common areas. Uh, it, it's a, it was a great way to get to know people, to sort of break the ice yeah. and to pull people in. You know what I mean? You, you start a game with three people yep. and it's immediately a game of six people. Right, right, right. And so that was the vision you had. Did you make any pleasant or unpleasant discoveries based on the games that you had packed for that purpose? No, everything went fairly good. It was like code names. I'm trying to remember the ones that I had. Code names is not what I would call remotely language independent. It's true. Okay, sorry. You were listing a set of criteria. Not all of them were necessary conditions. It's true. Okay, 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 okay. And I even had Tigers and Euphrates and Pandemic. So not so much those all the time. Like I said, there was there were mostly ones that were stayed in the base camp. I'm trying to remember all the. the it's, it was so long ago. Mark. <laughs> I know uh, archaeology was one the the card game archaeology. Nope, I can't. I can't remember all of them. So, to my mind, travel is a is a tremendous curse. Push your luck. Push your luck. Is it push your luck? The one where you're doing uh, rows of numbers and you either pass and take a token or press. Can't, can't stop. <laughs> no, that's the game. can't stop when you're ro- that's where you're rolling dice and you're going up the track. 
This one is you're trying to get the suits of numbers, and if if you you're only going to no thanks, no thanks. There we go. There no we thanks go. Was, Which is a push your luck game, of course. Yes. Which is language independent. Yeah, yeah. No thanks. Also scales really, really well, and is a bit of a spectacle, which is which is great. See, those are the kinds of games. I think of that I th- when I I think of people who are really good at, at animation, which is uh, uh, a term more frequently used in French Canada. We talk about someone being an animator, and and that in the context of French means somebody who's able to get a group of people together and, and do the thing. I was only ever a very successful animator once, and that was, I was at a party, and for whatever reason, I don't know how it happened, but suddenly everyone was like, we should play a game. Mark knows games. Mark, let's all play a game. And, well, no, it worked out fine because I'm like, Good. all I need is a deck of cards and we can play Werewolf. And we did. And because, you know, we're, uh, Werewolf, the numbers don't have to be properly balanced. You can introduce roles later on if you want to. And, and there were about 13 to 15 people there. And I, I quickly, I did a very, very quick look up about suggested number of werewolves and we were off to the races and it worked very, very, very well. Which is one of the reasons why, not that specifically, but that kind of setup, is that uh, I, I live the purse lifestyle. People who are familiar with our newsletter are familiar with my purse lifestyle. And the, one of the benefits of the purse lifestyle is you get to keep things in your purse that you might not need every single day, but are glad to have around. Uh, for example, I have a grocery bag in my purse. That's great. Uh, I carry uh, a handheld gaming console that's very, very, very tiny in my purse. So I always had a bill. And I also have two games with me at all times. One of them is R, which was published in North America as Brave Rats by Seiji Kanai. It consists of 15 cards, and so it's not exactly taking up much space or weight. And the other is a deck of Regicide. And that's one of the reasons why my Regicide deck is so battered, at least in terms of the box, because it travels with me wherever I go. And I know that worst case scenario, I've always ha- I've always got the opportunity to, to play a game of Regicide, which I've, I've done on the road sometimes, and on the road sometimes even is just, you know, I've got 20 minutes to kill at a cafe or something. Not that I frequent cafes much. And so in terms of like short, short range travel in and around Kingston, I'm always covered. Yeah. That's why I have one of my points is travel light because, you know, if you're doing any walking or if you're doing the backpacking thing, then you don't want a ton of games weighing you down. Yeah. I feel bad for campers, like campers who want to try to do board gaming. I don't even know how that would work. You would need something that is a probably waterproof. But B, also very, very portable. And those two don't really go together. And in C, organs. something that has can be played outside, right? Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be inside when you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, part of me would... All, all the ones that I can think of that are like genuinely waterproof, I think of things like the deluxe version of Hanabi, but it's big and bulky. I wouldn't want to uh, do that. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe something like No Thanks with plasticated cards. Maybe that would work. But That sort of leads into something else. Is that you, you want to... In that particular circumstance and other circumstances you want it to be games that are easily replaceable yeah right because there's going to be rain there's going to be drinks there's going to be stuff there's going to be someone who really enjoys it so you say yeah just take that with you then it's all (laughs) yours yes or there's going to be a a tokens blown away falling through the cracks all sorts of different things we want to make sure they're not you know heirlooms or games you love or irreplaceable things yeah, and that's good because in the small box game market, things do tend to stay in print longer than the current, you know, medium to big box market where it's like, oh, you better get it on, get it right now or it's going to be out of stock until the reprint Kickstarter comes. <laughs> so that is that is one uh, side benefit. I've, I have had some luck in contexts where I know I'm going to have a home base bringing slightly bigger stuff. Like, and I'm not talking about conventions. Every time I've had, I've gone to a convention, there's usually been a math trade involved. And so my bag is full of games that I'm not going to be playing and not going to be coming back with. But it's going to be full again of, of the stuff that I'm trading for. That was definitely true of Shucks. That was also true of the, the, the time I went to Gen Con. Anytime I'm going to go to a big convention, I'm absolutely going to do a math trade. So I, I, I don't really expect that. But there are games everywhere there, so I don't need to bring my own. The context, though, uh, specifically when I've had to go to Toronto and I've had a home base, which has not been always, but sometimes, I do feel slightly more comfortable bringing bigger stuff. Like, for example, the last time I went to Toronto, I actually left 
uh, Snapship's tactics in my trunk because I knew I wanted to try the solo version. And quite frankly, after eight to 10 hours at a hospital doing elder care, I thought maybe one of the things that I might want to do is play with some ridiculous plastic. And I did that. I did that part. I played with the ships, but I didn't end up trying the solo mode while I was in Toronto. I, I waited until I got back to Kingston. But. Yeah, that's another big point I have here, which sort of leads into another one. Make sure you bring games with a, with a good solo mode because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And the other one I always try to do is bring a game I don't know is because then I have the rule book to read in in places where, A, I can't set up a game or you know, or you're on a plane or you know, whatever. Then you, yeah. you, you have time and you have something enjoyable that you enjoy reading there to do i keep wanting that to be possible like that's one of those things where i i end up packing for for a reality that is not the one I li- in which i live because for those of you that, that don't know who've not heard me complain about this before i find travel so incredibly mentally taxing that i usually do not have enough resources left to process a new game and i really need to <laughs> internalize that and stick to stuff that i already know if it's going to be especially solo stuff uh, one recent exception, which was nice, was Demonship. And that's less because I'd already read the rules. And I hadn't played before, but I, I, I the first time I played was indeed in Toronto. Uh, but part of it was just the sheer joy of the physical design being so well suited to the circumstances of travel. As I said, it's a six inch by six inch tabletop miniatures game. And at full size, it's a, a, a mighty 12 inch by 12 inch. Hell, you could double the normal size and make it a foot by a foot. You're still going to have room, <laughs> no matter, almost no matter where you are for this kind of thing. It was so twee and it was just so delightful that I was willing to make an exception. And it's really easy to underestimate how much table space something takes up until you try to set it up in a, in a strange environment. Like we're so used to having the table upon which we play games. And I don't, even, I don't even mean a dedicated gaming table. I just mean the place where we normally play. And suddenly you find yourself saying, it's like, oh, well, I've got this corner of a dining room table. Turns out I've got far less than I, than I, than I wanted to. Like when I was playing um, Pocket Master Builder. Pocket it may well be. But you're setting out these rows of cards and it doesn't take much space on the table. But eh. it's, it quickly disappears. It quickly disappears. And so I was all the more reason why I was doubly glad for something like Demonship. So I'm trying to find some literature for this. I found one point that seemed interesting and worth mentioning is maybe bring co-op games, games with no aggression. Because maybe you're playing with new people mm. and maybe they might be adverse to uh, losing yeah. and or feeling they're being picked on. And if you're like locked in a cabin away from them for a week, then that, <laughs> that, that early game where they landed on bro- boardwalk might turn into <laughs> an issue. Okay, so here's what I'm imagining, right? I'm imagining a week-long gathering at the cabin or the chalet or the cottage or whatever. And you know some of the people, but you don't know all of them. You start off right away with a game of diplomacy just to set the tone. That's right. <laughs> just, to, just to let everyone know exactly how things are going to go down. Yeah, which actually highlights one of the big things for me when I'm on the road. Every time I go on a trip, well, not every time, but many of the times, this is, this is part of the self-delusion, I figure, okay, I'm going to have enough time. And I really want to try to reduce the burden of travel. And one of the ways that I can reduce the burden of travel for me is be able to get more work done while I'm away. And for me, work is the podcast. And so I figure, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to have new experiences. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to play new games. I'm going to go to that game cafe. I'm going to go to whatever, whatever. It's like, I find new people terrifying. (laughs) I just. I could, I could be sitting somewhere in a public space and people could be, could, three people could be setting up a game of Tigers and Euphrates, openly talking about how they desperately wanted a fourth, wearing swag t-shirts, and I would still find it difficult to stand up and say anything to them. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you take my point. Yes. Like the last time I went to Toronto, I figured, okay, I'm going to be able to manage my time better. I'm never able to manage my time on the road. I'm going to have some opportunities to get some work done. I never have any opportunities to get some work done. I'm going to be within about a uh, 15-minute walking distance of one of the uh, snakes and lattes that is in Toronto. Uh, I'm I'm going to go and it never happened. It just didn't <laughs> didn't materialize. You're like a billion times more gregarious than I am. That being said, my last point would be of things not happening is that every time I have a family gathering... I pack a bag of games. Yes. They go into the car. 
the number of times that bag gets used is one percent of the time. <laughs> and 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 I don't and that doesn't bother me. Just yep. knowing that the games are there is is just gives me a sense of either relaxation yep. or or whatever. And and we've stressed this, but there might be new listener new listeners or or people. Never force it. Yeah. What I what I just simply do is hey. Or, you know, if there's younger children there and say, hey, I brought a bunch of games. You guys want to try them? Just let me know. Or if the adults are there and it's like I brought other games, it's like, you know, you know, if you're ever bored or anything or want to give the, Remember you said that one time. Yep. Blah, blah, I, I brought them. I have them here and just let me know. And I and I always try to keep that attitude even with with gaming with gamers. It's like, hey, I got this. I, I bought this new game. It does this, this and this. And then I won't say anything else. Right. And if they're interested enough, then they'll mention it again and ask for it. Absolutely. Otherwise, then that game disappears because I'm I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah, yeah, we're of one mind on this. We don't we don't ever want to feel like we're forcing anything. The burden is too high. The sense of responsibility is too high. The consequences are too high. And that I think contributes to my sense of delusion because I, like you, would infinitely rather bring and not use than need and not have. Like the, like, like the scale of preference is so way off that I, like you, would rather 99 times load up a trunk of things I'm never going to use just for that one time when it might be there. Besides, and I've said this before in other contexts with respect to the joy of collecting, like just being able to take it off the shelf or something is a way to appreciate the product, both physically and conceptually. And so I don't even feel like it's 100% wasted. Now... Sometimes I've taken that logic too far and I've gone someplace on foot and I've overburdened myself. When you're on foot, the calculus shifts, right? And I need to be a little bit more discerning. But that having been said, I still don't even really regret because I just like having the options available. And I'd infinitely rather, even in context where someone has decided to play a game or where gaming is inevitable, be able to have that opportunity where someone's like, ooh, that one looks interesting. It's like, great. And start from a place of genuine enthusiasm, as opposed to, here's the thing I brought, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, just so. It's a burdensome topic, being on the road. It is. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a, 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 as big a bummer as the Cormac McCarthy novel, which I assume is not a pleasant set of experiences. I have, I have heard that it's quite painful. Okay. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. On that optimistic note, Thank you for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. We appreciate your having decided to spend time with us a great deal. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. You can find a whole bunch of great information there, too, about the Dramatis Personae, some of our editorial policies, further information about the Swagoo. You can get our merch, etc., etc., etc. As a quick side note, because we forgot to talk about it, check our YouTube page out, because this week we did a fantastic uh, trivia game before our stream. Uh, we gave away a whole bunch of marks, like Mark said, a bunch of decks of Regicide, but the questions were very interesting. They were made by Warm Boy and Sidewinder and Huey, and I did a couple of silly ones myself, but check it out. Very interesting on our YouTube live channel. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.